Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masech Psachim, daf Kuf Yud Bet, page 112. So in contrast to our recent spate of very short dapim and fairly short podcast episodes, um, we have a really long daf. We'll have to see exactly how long the episode turns into. But if we were to go through all of the things that there are to discuss on this daf, we would be here for some time. We're not going to do that. Um, okay. And I will say that this daf also seems to have a mix of, I would say, some some of the same kind of unusual content that we've seen in the past couple of dafim. You know, shadim, demons, and some other kinds of, you know, unusual occurrences type of thing. And on the flip side, I would say it's almost like a book of Proverbs or, you know, where you end up with sages giving kind of lists of advice points, right? I'm reminded of Hamlet, right? And Polonius's speech of, to thine own self be true, or as we see in the book of Proverbs. Now, I don't think that that's, I don't, I mean, I'm going to guess that this didn't happen all at once, right? Like, okay, let's have a seminar and everybody's going to give over their points of advice. My guess is, and it's truly a guess. And it would take a lot more scouring of the entirety of Shas to really figure this out if it's even possible. But my guess is that that um that the Gemara, that the compilers of the Gemara put these statements together. What do you think about that, Yardina? Yeah, it's definitely a page of advice. Um, I mean, we do always see the Gemara have, you know, sort of these types of passages, you know, where it's giving us uh, thoughts that a particular rabbi has about ways to live your life this is really a full page of it that I think is a little bit different. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to see what are the different topics. And also I would pay attention to who the audiences are, right? Like some of them are fathers talking to sons. Some of them is a father talking to a Talmud, uh, sorry, a Rebbe talking to a Talmud. So I also thought that was, uh, interesting to sort of look at those types of differences. Like, is there a difference between what, again, a father wants to tell a son versus what, a, you know, a Rebbe wants to tell his student. Okay, nice. Okay, so I'm going to start with, uh, I'm, I don't know, somewhere halfway through Ahmed Aleph with some statements by Rebbe Kiva. Now, Rebbe Kiva, we know a good amount about Rebbe Kiva, and we're not going to go through all of that now, but just keep in mind that when he's talking, he's speaking from a, a real array of experiences that, not maybe, that maybe not all of Chazal had. So the Gemara says here, so he says, the Mishnah, right, the Mishnah going back further on the daf and previous daf, right, is to teach that what happens, that Rabbi Kiva said, make your Shabbat like a whole day. What does that mean? That if you have a poor person who has X number of food, X amount of food for X number of meals, right, so then it's, the challenge would be then for him to take, is he supposed to take tzedakah, charity, to have a sudashlishi on Shabbat? Or can he treat Shabbat like a day of chul, rather than rely on other people? So Rabbi Kiva is the one who says, make your Shabbat like a chul. Not that it shouldn't have sanctity, but that in terms of the, I will, I'm interjecting here, the, the oppressive nature of what can happen when you have all these obligations to, to do more and more and more on Shabbat. So the claim of make it like chul, you know, and do not, and thereby do not be beholden to other beings. I have to laugh because of Polonius and neither a bar or a Neurlander B. And here we have right this, right? Do, do not be beholden to other other people. Um, sorry. Um, okay. So that's, you know, one statement. And it's coming off of the Mishnah, 
and it's very much in the context of we've been talking about poor people and and their obligations for things like the four cups and so on and the point is of course that when it comes to the four cups then the poor person should accept the assistance and everybody else should provide the assistance because we're talking about a case of Pirsume Nisa to publicize the miracle. And I'm sure you'll remember Pirsume Nisa as a factor in things like the miracle of Hanukkah, where the idea that once you've got a miracle to publicize, a lot of the general uh, halachic conduct issues are kind of set aside, that we're going to go further, we're going to stick our necks out further to make sure that that miracle is publicized and I think that it does, you know, dovetail or align nicely with a lot of what happens with the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, with the Exodus from Egypt, and the idea that, you know, God's name is being made great by the phenomenon of the plagues, by the phenomenon of B'nai Israel, you know, getting the permission to leave to begin with, and then going through the Yamsuf, the Red Sea, and everything like that. The whole of it is publicizing the miracle of God's, God's ability, God's role in the world. Um, so the idea then that when you can say, we have the four cups and people need to accept the fact, people who need help, let's say, who don't have the financial means to have their own four cups, they should accept the financial assistance. And the answer is, again, because Persimene, so we stick our neck out a little bit further. Um, okay. I'm going to jump down now to, we have a statement, it says Tanur Rabbanan, right? The Gemara is going to talk a bunch now about Rabbi Kiva's statement specifically about Shabbat preparations. Shiva Dvarim Tziva Rabbi Kiva at Rabbi Yoshua Beno. So Rabbi Kiva has, has the seven matters that he talks to Rabbi Yoshua, his son, about. Uh, there are other Rabbi Yoshua's, let's be clear about that. Beni al teshev begavoa shal ir Don't sit at the high point of the city, meaning there's a lot of people who will pass by there, and study because you're going to get interrupted. Va'al tador ba'ir she don't live in a city where the leaders are the are chachamim, the Torah scholars. And this, I think, is such a such a beautiful point, right? If you're a Talmud Chacham, then you should be involved in your Torah study, and you won't have time to govern properly. The implication, of course, being it's not an implication; it's really stated straight out that you know you can't do everything. So that no matter how great of a scholar you are, if you're truly focused on your scholarship and your learning, then you're not going to be as great of a of a political leader, and presumably the reverse is true as well. Uh, do not enter your house suddenly, meaning without knocking. Don't, and all the more so into somebody else's house. I have a friend who used to always, um, she was a roommate, she would always knock on the door when she would come into the room that we shared, right? Which I always felt was like, but hello, like this is also your room. You could just enter, you don't need to knock. And this is exactly the idea that you want to make sure that whoever is in there is going to be, you know, is in a, a mindset, I guess, to accept that somebody else is coming into the room. Uh, do not, um, do not prevent shoes from your feet. The idea being that there is some disgrace in going barefoot. Uh, I wonder what it really means that there's a disgrace in going barefoot. Uh, this is an interpretation at this point. I can tell you that there is some measure of generational uh, identity with barefoot or not. My father, he should live and be well. Um, really never goes barefoot, not ever. And he used to tell me when I was a kid that, you know, it was a sign of mourning. He only knew of sock, stocking feet, socks as a so in a house of mourning. Whereas I feel like I grew up barefoot all the time, you know, except for in the winter as a, or, or except for when you're outside, you know. So there is a generational element here. But Rebbe Kiva is very clear that you do not keep, you do not, um, do not keep your shoes from your feet. 
Hashkem v'achol b'kayis mivnei chama u'b'chorf mivnei atzina. When you get up, you should eat in the summer because it's hot. So eat before it gets too hot. And in the winter, you want to eat before so that you have enough strength to, to bear the cold. And the same statement that we had above in greater detail, perhaps that's the original location of that statement, right? That you should uh, make your Shabbat like Chol, that you should not require too much excess for your Shabbat meals and lest you be dependent on others. Um, and work on yourself so that you can join up with other people um, where, who, who are themselves successful. Right, um, that the, the time or the hour is playful with them. The idea being that I, I mean, this is my interpretation, but you know, if you have, if you're in good company, then it will rub off on you. So these are the statements of Rabbi Kiva as you know his general good advice, which I think are, I think we can kind of relate, or at least in at least in some measure, we can relate to them, even if our own sensitivity sensibilities and sensitivities are slightly different nowadays. And then I have one last point from Rabbi Kiva, and then Yudin, I'm going to turn it over to you. At the end of Amun Aleph, we have another statement or another several statements from Rabbi Kiva. So Rabbi Kiva says to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, "Do not cook in a pot in which your colleague, right, your friend, has cooked his food." Now. This, on the surface of it, seems a little bit nonsensical because why can't you just wash out the pot and use it yourself, right? What's what's the problem? And the implication here, and the Gemara is pretty clear about this, is that this is a euphemistic statement. It's metaphorical. Ma'inihu, what is he talking about? Grusha b'chaye ba'ala. It's the, the nimshal, the, the parable is speaking really about somebody who was divorced during the life that her husband or her really her ex-husband is still alive. The idea um, being that, you know, do not get involved with this woman whose husband is, whose ex-husband is still alive. Um, because a divorced man who divorced, who marries a divorcee, you have four opinions in the bed. Now, the part of the reason this, this Gemara struck me is that I feel like this is a kind of statement that people make, especially in Key of circles, but also when they're trying to, I think I've heard it most commonly said in the context of the holiness, the sanctity of intimacy, and the idea of why people, you know, why there's an advantage to a lack of experience, let's say, with anybody else except for the person that you marry. And here, this is Rabbi Kiva making the same point, namely the idea that if you have people have a history with somebody else, then the claim is, of course, that all of that history joins you in the bed together. And that's a challenge, you know, a potential challenge anyway, for uh, a true intimacy between the couple. I think that a lot of our modern uh, modern experience, certainly in the secular world, where there's many, much more likelihood of multiple partners, I think that, um, I think that people will say this is no longer necessarily true. Uh, I do not know. It is not my life experience. I actually am quite pleased that it's not my life experience. But I, I think it, that it bears reflecting wherever you're coming from, co-learners, you know, whatever, wherever you're coming from, this is, I think, an interesting statement that it's, um, it's the opposite of a prudish statement, right? From the Gemara that's making a comment on, on what the value is supposed to be even, even within the marital bed. Look, I think it's also one of these statements that today um, we don't, yes, there's some education around some of these things, but even the way it's recorded, 
and how Rabbi Akiva says it, it's not in like a guilty way. It's not in a shaming way. It's kind of said just much more factually. And so that's why I'm willing to listen to it a little bit more. Whereas I think like some of the nonsense books, quite frankly, I won't name them by title, that talk about <laughs> some of these same things are written in a way that like, I just think are so guilty shaming. And that's not like, he's just saying something that may be a piece of life that just a person should consider. It's much, it, to me, it's much more matter of fact uh, in a way that I, you know, that at least I could respect in that sense. Um, right. That's why, that's why I see it as it's a, it's a recognition that there's a potential challenge. Right, exactly. But it's not like you're a bad person, you're this, you're that. And, and so that's why I like how Rabbi Akiva formulates it there. Um, I'm going to hop on, I'll do Ahmed Bet today. And I just want to point out a couple of interesting things here. Um, although most we probably could have read this whole doc and discussed many of the passages here. The first is uh, about Rabbi Huda Hanasi and his sons. Right. And so there were four things that Rabbi Huda Hanasi uh, instructed his sons about. Right. And the first one is Altador Bishik Natsiv. Uh, so the first thing he told his sons, and again, I think this is interesting because Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is living in Eretz Yisrael. He's a Tana of Eretz Yisrael, the last, not the last Tana, but the last generation of the Tanaim. And he tells his sons that you shouldn't live in this particular town of Shech Natsiv, which is not one of, I would say, the more um, famous towns of Bubba, but it does appear a couple of times within the Gemara. So we'll see that name again because they were mockers, right? They, I guess they had a type of personality trait. They were a little arrogant or they mocked Torah or something like that. And that that's sort of like how people behave there and they will make lead you to mockery also. And that's going to make you not be good Torah scholars. And so I thought this was interesting because first of all, I think it shows that you know, there was a lot of travel between Eretz Yisrael and Babel, and that I don't think it was uncommon for people to leave Eretz Yisrael and go to Babel. We certainly know that of Rabbi Huda Hanasi's students, right, of Shmuel and Rav, that they learned with him, but they eventually headed up Yeshivot in Babel. But, you know, I think this also was a concern that he had for his own children, and that even though Rabbi Huda Hanasi was very wealthy and was very established, I think there still was a chance that his children could have left Eretz Yisrael and actually have gone um, to Babel. And again, I think, you know, in the similar vein of what we read about with Rabbi Akiva, this seems to be practical sense, right? Like different communities have different sort of tones to them or vibes to them. And you should pay attention to that because it may turn you into something that you don't actually uh, really want to be. Um, and so thinking about that, um, the next piece that I wanted to go to, which I thought was just almost like a an Escher painting, because <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I don't know how you solve this problem. I'm a Rav Papa. So Rav Papa says the following. Beta de es ba shunra, lo ni ulba inish below masne. Okay? So a person, Rav Papa says, a house in which there's a cat, a person shouldn't enter it below masne. Shouldn't enter it barefoot. My time, what's the reason? Mishun de shunra katil lechuya, Right? So what does he say? Because he says that a cat might kill a snake and eat it, and the snake has small bones. And in other words, one of those bones will be left on the floor in the dark, 
and a person's foot, you'll step on it and it can't be removed and he'll be in danger. Okay. That that's the issue, but the Askanle, right. He'll be put, his life will somehow be put in danger. But then they say, right. Others say, what did he say? Rafapa, right. A house that has no cat in it, right. You shouldn't go into it. Inish Behakra, right, in the dark. And right, my time, what's the reason? Dilma Right? Because maybe since there's no cat, there's more likely to be a snake, and the snake will sort of come to you, you know, in the dark. You're not gonna see it and wrap himself around the person and and uh and the person will be in danger. So I just thought this was a great passage because you know. Clearly, there's some tradition they have about Rav Papa, a cat, and a snake. The Gemara is not sure which one it is. Both of them seem like sound pieces of advice. You know, so when we were prepping this, I said, Dan, I'm like, so basically you can't go into any house in the dark. Because if it has a cat, it's dangerous. And if it doesn't have a cat, it's dangerous. <laughs> um, but the solution, I hate to say this with all great respect to Escher, um, I think the solution is that he really only said one of these two things. I, I know that, but it's just funny to see like I know you know that. how it's like, you know, how it like, it's totally opposite, whatever it is. Um, but the way that it like records it, you know, like I, I just am always taken by, again, in our world where I think there tends to be in particular pockets of Judaism, this trend towards uniformity. Like the Gemara is always comfortable to show the Eka de Amri. It's always comfortable to say, no, we heard it this way, but it's possible it actually was this way. And they're okay with it. Like both of those statements can exist at the same time. And they're perfectly But it also makes that. sense to me. It also makes sense to me that it would be hard to remember which is the real one because the, the opposite of it also makes sense. Right, they both make sense. sense. So you can totally see why both of them could have been remembered. Right. A hundred percent. Both of them do make a lot of sense when you read it. Um, and then finally, I wanted to move to one passage as sort of at the bottom of Amud Bet, which talks about, I'm not going to read it all inside just for the sake of time, but it talks about, again, we're back to our demons, right? That there's a brace here that talks about don't go, not going alone out at night on Tuesdays or Shabbat, because there is this particular demon, um, Agrat Bat Machlat. Um, and that she has these 180,000 angels of Malchi Chavla, like angels of destruction, and each of them have permission to destroy them. And so the Gemara then goes on to say that, you know, these demons were here every day, Kula Yomazmana, they were there every day. But one time, Rabbi Hanina Ben Dosa, remember this is a Tana, you know, ran into this um, Agrat Bat Machlat. And basically said, you know, well, well, Agar Bat Machlat said to, to met Rabbi Hanina Zosa and says to him, right, uh, that basically if you, if they didn't announce about you in Shamayim, right, to be careful of Hanina and his Torah, right, I would have put you in danger. And so therefore he said, okay, if I'm that important in Shamayim, then I'm basically going to make a decree on you. I can basically, you know, make sure that you're not powerful anymore. And um, and make sure that you um, that you can never go into uh, to inhabited. You can't go in inhabited places. And so she basically says, OK, leave me alone, um, you know, so that I can, uh, you know, leave me alone. And so he basically gives her that she still can sort of uh, start trouble on Tuesdays and uh, and Friday nights. Right. So it's just it's a total. Now, again, just to remind us who Rabbi Hanina Bendosa is, you know, we talked about him in Brachot. 
He's a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, but he tends to be associated with these types of like miracle or spiritual um, stories. These, this is like a very Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa uh, story. You know, there's a mystical piece to him. Um, and, uh, and, and so we see that here in this particular story. And then the Gemara goes on here and says that another, so that's a Tana story, right? And then the Gemara talks that again, Agrat, you know, Bat Machlat ran into Abaye, right? And said, and, and here we see where Abaye is called Nachmani, which is sometimes what he's called. And again, the same thing where he's sort of announced in Shamayim. Um, and then she, he again says to her, you know, if you're that important, uh, you know, I find that important that I can basically say that you should not be allowed to Yishuv, right? You can't be in a place that's inhab- inhabited. And so then the Chachamim started saying, the end, wait, but we know that demons still are in inhabited areas. And so they say, no, what, what do they say about these demons? They say, right, that they're found on the gaz, Gaziate, the paths that are near the cities, right? Um, because the horses that are belong to the demons, they flee on those paths and the demons come to lead them away. So they're not really in like super inhabited places. They're in places outside of the city. Again, it goes back to what we talked about, you know, on the top of Kufyud particularly. These demons were very real to them. And the idea that, first of all, a human could have power over them or change their activity, um, they were recognizable. We spoke to demons. Um, it's just, you know, it, just a story that I think, again, underscores how much uh, demons were really part of their life and their spiritual life and that people really saw them as an element that we had to contend with or they were part of our living world. Um, I think there's something really special about how not only do the, do the people care about the demons, it seems here that the demons care about the people, right? Like there's, there's like a whole ecosystem or whatever of people demon society, I don't know, which I find unexpected, particularly even in light of the previous stuff or two dafim ago, right? That this is um, a little more friendly, so to speak. Right. It's a, right. So that's also what's interesting here. It doesn't seem as nefarious in the sense of it's like a Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa and Abai, like they recognize what the demon's job is, right? So they're sort of like, all right, we'll negotiate it. I'll give you these nights or you can still stay on this path. You know, it's kind of negotiated. It's like each one of them is trying to figure out like, what's their place in the world? What's the Tamil Chacham's place? What's the demon's place in the world? And that the Tamil Chacham, right? Whether it's Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa or Abai, has some power over sort of evil forces that are in this world. They actually, that's the, that's the power of the Tamil Chacham. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I still don't understand demons, right? Meaning I'm not, I can't pretend that I do. Why is the Tamil Chacham involved in demons as opposed to learning Halacha or a Parshanut or something, right? But I guess if demons are part of your regular existence and your religious existence, then who better than the Talmud Chacham? Absolutely. And just before we wrap up, one more plug. Our CM is coming very soon. Please sign up if you've not signed up yet and register. We can't wait to finish Masach Sachim with you. If you would like to share some Torah at our CM, uh, let us know as well when you register. Um, and I guess from here, I will say, you know, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. 
Let us know what you thought about this app, some of its advice, and again, discussion about demons on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go. 